forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. This podcast only exists because of the support of its listeners. So thank you to everyone who gives money at Patreon and everyone who subscribes. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. You find the usual bonus episodes, exclusive writing, a zine for some reason, and a tote bag and all the usual things. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. I wanted to talk to somebody about envy in the writing community, but envy in general. It seems to be our dominant mode of appreciation is to look at somebody's life as it's presented via social media and wish that it were our own. But this seems particularly difficult to deal with in literature. There's a certain writer persona that exists, and it can be a little hard to deal with sometimes if your writing career doesn't look like the pretty girls of Instagram. So I talked to Barbara Borland, who is the author of I'll Eat When I'm Dead and has a new novel coming out called Fake Like Me. She also happens to be my neighbor here in Baltimore. I read your book that's coming out, Fake Like Me, and I thought this is a person that I want to discuss professional envy with um, and or or envy explicitly in the in the sort of writing world. Um, And one of the reasons why I wanted uh, to is because despite um, you being able to write very deftly about uh, the creative worlds in this particular uh, book you're writing about visual artists but in your previous book it was um, sort of writers and magazines um there is uh there is not with you personally this sort of performative self online um in that i that is now such an important part of being a writer is being a writer online, being a personality, being a brand, being a social media presence, um, which to me sets up this sort of envy thing. And so you write about envy, but without sort of participating in your writing life, I guess. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about that. Do you mean that I don't go out of my way to generate envy? Or to generate a sort of personal brand in general, which I think is kind of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the one hand, it, it seems to me somewhere that it feels deliberate because the reason that we're doing all of this, we as writers are doing all of this work about our brand is about how, you know, late stage capitalism has completely utterly siloed us. I am as far from an employee as a person can possibly be. And that's in a, in a nation where 36% of the American workforce, now they are freelancers. They're on a 1099. That's not just being an hourly worker. That's being totally and utterly divorced from any and all labor laws that might entitle you to more than just an hourly compensation, depending on what you're doing. And so, um, and even then you have to bring kind of all the stuff to the table as a writer, I, th- I think is the idea that you don't build an audience. You come with an audience, um, you come to your publisher with an audience. Um, I didn't really do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when my first book came out, the successes that it had, I felt had really nothing to do with whether I'd done that or not. You know, if I was online 24 seven writing copy about lipstick and shoes and dating and whatever else, um, I don't, I mean, I don't, is it really a meaningful transition to, for me to become this kind of make this sales channel of my own personality, I actually don't think that that works. Mm-hmm. And I publishers, they want to have numbers um, at the meeting to talk about, but whether or not that reasonably translates into sales in kind of the conversion bucket um, is questionable. So, yeah. So in Fake Like Me, you have a painter who is sort of fraught with envy. And I like that she doesn't have a name because she is in this kind of like... Um, 
this comparative space for a lot of uh, the time of the book that she's trying to figure out the selfie, her feelings for these other artists or the feeling of being an outsider from this other more accepted group. Um, So, um, yeah. Can you tell us, I guess this is an awkward setup for, please tell us about your book. <laughs> uh, I'm delighted to talk about this book. I love this book. Uh, yeah. The book is a fake like me is about a young painter who um, she's not really that young when the kind of the action of the book kicks into place. She's 34, which uh, I think is that middle age? Is that I, told, I called myself middle age the other day, and my husband was like, "You're not going to die at seventy, Barbara." Luke but Perry I might. died at fifty-two. Yeah, Luke Perry. We're Luke all Perry. fragile. Would bodies. that I could live as burn as bright as uh, Mr. Perry. Yeah. I um. Yeah. Anyway, the not fake like me is about a painter who, uh, from sort of the very first year of art school, becomes really enamored of this group of older artists that she thinks of as being really edgy and really conceptual. Um, and she thinks of herself as, as just kind of being this compulsive person who does something that's sort of antiquated, which, um, you know, of course the parallels to being a writer, um, novels are kind of an antique form. Um, and there is sort of the, uh, the eternal, you know, Americans are reading more than ever before, but it's because they're reading lists on their phone. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not because they're reading other people's social media posts. It's not because they're sitting down with a paper book. Um, which isn't to say that books are not doing well, because if you ask someone who's in book production, they'll tell you that books are doing very well. Um, and but if you ask a journalist, you know, they'll probably feel differently about it. I um, it is very difficult, I think, to uh, find wholeness and confidence as a totally independent laborer in a world full of institutions and affiliations. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm to have faith in yourself as a person out on their own. And everyone around you is asking you to kind of constantly draw attention to yourself, um, to do things that should draw attention to you. And I'm sorry, that's my bracelets (laughs) clanking. I apologize. I, uh, yeah. So that is sort of where the, the envy begins is that the painter is kind of put in this context throughout the book, uh, in relationship to older artists who, who have had a longer career of being professionally marketed Mm -hmm. and she doesn't really see it that way. She thinks that they're just better at it than she is. Yeah. And I think that's, um, how it goes in writing as well. I mean, we think of, uh, certain writers as being particularly successful, but they're just being professionally marketed. Um, of course. Yeah. Of and course. it just yeah, they've got the, the great design. They've got the great one liner. And all it really takes to make a successful book most of the time is just give them $600,000 for the, for the uh, debut, because then you immediately get all this media attention just based on how enormous your uh, advance was. Totally. And the bigger the advance, you know, you're throwing more, you're throwing good money after bad because you can't, you can't buy a million dollar book and then give it a $50,000 marketing (laughs) budget. You just can't do it. It's, it's, it's really, it's really poor, poor business um, to do something like that. But I, uh, people do, they do do it all the time. It Mm -hmm. does happen. Um, Realistically, you know, when you look, when you and I, I think, think about the writers whose work we really like that we go back to again and again, they're meaningful to us that we talk about with other people. um, Often they're dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, So (laughs) that certainly has a a pretty big impact on the way in which um, they're processed by a, a greater kind of consumer culture because it's, it's really easy to be generous about dead people and Mm -hmm. it's far more difficult to be generous about the living, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, and, and there's always the potential that, that they will change or that, uh, something will happen and, and the sort of public opinion will turn. Um, so, you know, a question of like, who am I going to get out and praise today, but what incredibly dumb thing could they potentially do next week? And would I be part of the sort of tide of negative public opinion? Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah there's this kind of like internal hesitation. Sorry. Maybe that was like really quick. I've, <laughs> I didn't mean to cut to that quickly. Um, oh, I've lost it for a moment. I'm sorry. Oh, well I was thinking like, um, I think that the reason why, or one of the reasons why, besides just being so fucking pure and angelic that everyone loves Keanu Reeves mm. is that he doesn't try to create an envy. Like he doesn't right. uh, do the welcome to my beautiful house. Um, look yeah, at my life. He's not an architectural style. digest. Right. Uh, he's not trying to create envy, which means he's not trying to create 
resentment. And I think that's really important. I have no, I have no desire to create any envy or resentment of anyone. No one out there, please don't think that I don't need your help. I need your help. Feel sorry for me. Um, Well, don't feel me. Too far with that. Um, But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a really, I, no one is trained for this. I have no training in this. I, I was in one play in the ninth grade and I got cut all the way down to just like walking on stage and like shrugging. And then, you know, and I, I started with like multiple lines and it wasn't even a faculty director. It was a student director, um, who just, you know, shook her head sadly anytime I did anything because I froze up and I was really, um, terrible at it. And I, this, the idea of performing a self in public is not, I understand that there's certainly like an upcoming generation, the generation Z potentially, I don't don't know. It's unclear. If you're born after the year 2000, I think that you probably have a really innate sense of, um, all of the like incredibly complex semiotics of performing a public self, but I don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I can observe it in other people, but it's just not an instinct that I have. My instinct is to, to go to another room, you know, and smoke cigarettes out the window and not talk to anybody. So the thing that I don't understand, well, of the many things that I don't understand about contemporary writing culture, um, the thing that I am probably the most baffled about is uh, a swarm of uh, white girl New York writers who spend a lot of their time trying to cultivate envy um, through their sort of uh, presentation of of their public selves. Yeah, that is uh, baffling to me, too, because it seems like, you know, sort of somewhere somewhere deep inside, I I want to be taken seriously for what I say, not for how I look. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's not all the time, but uh, it, it is in there. It's baffling to me that other people who spend most of their time sitting alone in a room are so eager to do this thing that women have been doing for thousands of years which is performing our physical selves for the entertainment of another's gaze. I'm shot. I'm surprised when other people want to do that. It's not a thing that I personally want to do. It's not that I don't want to do it interpersonally because I believe very deeply um, that when we get dressed, when we do our hair, you know what I mean? Uh, When we sort of like paint, paint and adorn our bodies, we're sending a message and we're having a conversation with the people around us. Uh, But for me, for someone my age, that means interpersonally. It doesn't mean through the through the lens of a of a larger distributed medium like the internet. So some of it seems like a mix of um, muse and creator of wanting to be both, in the sense of a lot of these sort of um, uh, Instagram accounts and Twitter feeds and all that kind of stuff harken back to like uh, the presentation of the muse uh, to the artist, like, and and a lot of these women also sort of idealize these, uh, the muses and pretend like, like that's an an art form to be Um, a muse, to be a muse, to be oppressed by a man and have your voice taken away. What a thrill. There's a rehabilitation project going on right now. Like the New York review of books um, has now published republished like the memoir of a couple different muses, both in a row, like Picasso's muse and then some other like a uh, central. Anyway, um, I find it uh, not to dismiss pretty girls contribution to our world, uh, but I don't think it's enough. Anyway, um, I'm getting, I'm already being more catty than I uh, was planning to. Well, I guess it's sort of frustrating to feel like we're, we don't have to be the pretty ones. That's the thing. It's like, <laughs> right. pretty, Pretty yeah. girls, get out there, do your pretty girl thing. But um, that's not, you know, you sort of think, what are my people like? And my people wear the same clothes they wore yesterday. <laughs> and that could be a very cool outfit. But like, you know, you're going to get away with it for as long as you can. Yeah. But the sort of mix is like the the feminine pursuit has always been sort of being the muse and the, the male genius being the uh, creator. Um, but now it's like women trying to do both. Uh, and I, but I only like inspiring themselves, like because it, yeah. you know, so much I, of the writing is personal. I hate to put the onus on the people who are doing it because I, I think of it more as a, a complex of victimization and an inability to stand on one's own against the market for a, a variety of really good reasons, which is that everybody's got to make a living. Mm-hmm. 
And we live in a circumstance in which women writers are being asked to draw attention to themselves in every way possible in order to stand out from the herd. And one of the easy ways to do that, if you are young, if you are pretty, Mm -hmm. even whatever your age is, if you can put on a red lip and take a nice selfie, you're going to do it because it's really easy. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're comfortable with it, I think it can be really validating. And I don't think that anyone who's doing that is doing something that's malicious. I don't, I don't think it's their failure. I think that they are subject to market forces that are greater than they are as we all are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but it does, um, bum me out that I personally have no, uh, I have no alternative really. I, when we were sort of talking about doing this podcast, I was trying to think of of who, whom on the online do I genuinely envy? The only name I could really come up with was Nomi Fry, who writes for the New Yorker has such a great online presence. I think she's, she's like a living Garfield cartoon. She's funny. Um, she's personal. She's personable. Uh, she, you know, you have a kind of sense of knowing her, but then of course, you know, you probably don't know her at all. Um, and it's, it's not about, it, it doesn't appear to me to be about having a, a really composed physical self. It, it's, it's a better joke than that. And mm-hmm. I, I envy her ability to be so effort, seemingly effortless, effort, I'm going to try that sentence again. (laughs) I envy her ability to be so seemingly effortless with her presentation of self online. I think it's, it's very impressive. I don't personally have an alternative, but Mm I, I don't want to have to take bikini photos of myself that are like, look at me. You know, the only, (laughs) the only swimsuit selfie I have of myself is, um, it has my cell phone reflected in like six different parts of the image, which I thought was deeply sad. (laughs) Uh, So that's as good as I am at that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I am more prone to envy from the, for the, uh, the pretty girls of, of the writing culture. Um, And I hate myself that I, that I do feel envy because I know better than that, but at the same time I can't help myself. Um, But I, I did notice as I was thinking about doing this podcast, um, that I don't, I don't envy anybody that I actually admire. In yeah, sense, you want I, them to have everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't envy talent. Um, I don't either. When yeah, I read strange? something, so one of as we were, uh, so I, uh, you write for a website called The Outline, mm-hmm. and they have a writer there, Leah Finnegan, who has a an ongoing column. And one of her columns in December was about envy. And she refers to this Granta essay that I had completely forgotten right, yeah. that I read. And I went back and I reread it. And it's Catherine Chetkovich, who Chetkovic, mm-hmm. I don't excuse know. me, unclear. It's got an H, who is the longtime partner of Jonathan Franzen. And it's a first person essay about her envy of her partner. And um, she really envies what she perceives to be his boundless talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have friends who I think of as being boundlessly talented, but when I read what they write, I don't feel any lick of envy. I feel I am thrilled. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thrilled to know them. I'm thrilled that they did it. Yeah. Um, I have only once envied a romantic partner writer, uh, but that was just for his six figure, six, six figure book deal. He got a hundred, he got half a million dollars mm-hmm. for a book that wasn't very good at all. Sure. So I, it's it the same the thing. Like, yeah. Uh, so that's he the only... feels really terrible about that. I mean, think he about this not. for the rest of his <laughs> life. He's going to walk around and people are going to be like, that guy got half a million bucks because he conned somebody. You know, I mean, that feels yeah. probably pretty bad. Yeah. He was one of the that managed to not have that be part of the news story, though. No one knows that he got that much money. Oh, alas. see, he kept it secret. This yeah. is a good idea. That's what idea. you got to do. It's like keeping your lottery winning secret. Yeah. Otherwise, um, people want you to pay for their surgeries and stuff. <laughs> They're like half a million dollars. What a thrill. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, well then I guess good on him. I don't know. I mean, that's probably stressful in its own way, I guess. I, it's hard for me to genuinely be envious of writers, I guess, because mm-hmm. I feel like we're all, we're all kind of in the shit together. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not, it's a really isolating life. It's really alienating your legal relationships with other entities are kind of confusing. And then, you know, the, the thing that you have the relationship over is something that's very personal to you, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily personal to anyone else. And that is troubling mm-hmm. as a emotional setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can also be incredibly freeing, much like you go to therapy and you're like, man, I'm paying you to listen 
to every horrible thing that I think. And once you get past the point of like not wanting to be liked by your therapist, which I don't, in my case took like a decade, I'm going to say, then you, then you're really letting it out there. And so with your kind of with your editors, you're like, oh, we're in this financial relationship where you have to make me, uh, you have to make me more palatable to an audience. And, and I don't know if that means making me a better writer or not, but certainly it's because I'm writing for an audience. I'm not writing for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that that is actually, that does allow you to put some kind of maybe be over emotional or overexposed in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think about envy all the time. I passively envy tons of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I'm usually able to pretty quickly circle around into some kind of equilibrium over what I perceive that feeling to be. But when I haven't been able to, it's been absolutely overwhelming Mm -hmm. as an experience, which I think is part of what fake like me comes out of. If I had to, I mean, I would more happily just tell you that it was a bunch of ghosts that took over my body, (laughs) Um, but uh, it probably is connected somewhere. Um, Oh, there's a, Oh, that's a, that's got some fun name. That's the police chopper, the Baltimore police chopper flying overhead. It hover, it hover. It has some cutesy name. I forgot it. Uh It's around. It's checking us out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, obviously the financial precarity of most writers contributes to a lot of this, um, especially when there's so little real information um, in the sense of uh, how much a person gets paid for writing. Sure, of course. How many books actually get sold because, um, you know. Did you participate in the Authors Guild survey? I didn't. I did not. No, I didn't either. No, because they wanted ISBNs and they wanted the amount of my advances. Yeah. Fuck that. No. And I was just like, man, this isn't I actually am not comfortable giving this to you yeah. because I have no confidence that you're able to protect this data in any way, which isn't I'm not trying to like call it the author's guild here. It's just my general suspicion. Yeah. But there is also um, there is sort of uh, occult workings going on as far as um, no one will ever tell you true book sales numbers ever, ever, ever. Um, you can, yeah, you get, I mean, you get it six months later. Well, I mean, no, I mean like to each other. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, no, hardly anyone is truthful about how much money they get paid to write anything. Um, and then also no one really knows how to sell a book. Um, <laughs> well, it's tough. It's yeah. tough. Taste is confusing. Taste is confusing, but also the idea that it's within the author's control um, is, uh, I think, creates this crazy anxiety, right? To um, create a platform, to create a brand, uh, to um, build a you know an an audience, um, which generally just means do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, all of that. But, uh, but that, I don't think that actually creates, um, good writing, but the anxiety of not actually knowing how any of this works, um, or what other people's realities are, I think can create, uh, the, uh, environment for envy to take over. Absolutely. I mean, and this is all of us being pitted against each other by a financial system that doesn't that care about any of us in which we don't, we are not inspired to care about each other. We're all just kind of looking for a lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I mean, I don't know. I genuinely don't know what to do about it. Of course. Hey guys, newsflash, local woman doesn't know what to do about capitalism. Doesn't know how to solve Get the, the New York times <laughs> on the horn. Um, yeah, it is really, uh, it's really difficult. We are so fractured and the book business is so incredibly fractured. I mean, there were two book distributors until the mid 1990s. This is what Amazon did. Forgive me. You probably know this, but maybe for readers, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if this is interesting to you or not. But, um, you know, Jeff Bezos is not some guy who loved books. He was a, an analyst at D.E. Shaw and uh, he was looking or he learned about the Internet and he thought he said, hey, that's a middleman. Mm-hmm. And he waited to try to figure out what the stable commodity that was a hard, hard good that didn't need to be refrigerated, that could be easily transported with a with a centralized distribution system that was uh, suffering in some way. And he figured it out. And that is how Amazon came to be. But when that happened, so this is, I mean, that's a world with two distributors. Can you, that's, that's 20 years ago. It's, it's crazy to me that that was how things were. And now there's, uh, you know, there's at least 10, I would say, major distributors. Publishers, of course, have bought their own or generated their own. Uh, distribution is where a lot of the money is. It's actually because they get 23% coming. They get 23% going. They get a holding fee. They get to process remainders. 
you know, the production part of the book business is actually really quite lucrative. Um, it's on the editorial part that everybody feels like they're kind of taking chances. And I think that, um, no one has come up with a solution to this. Um, and I try not to be too fucked up about it. That's sort of my ultimate attempt Yeah, is to just, I can have, yeah, we're, we're inspired to try to take control over every part of our quote unquote brand. Even though like all of the things that are like my ideal version of a brand are things that are not commercially palatable. And I'm aware of that. (laughs) So um, that sort of puts that makes it. So then it's not, I mean, it's not up to me. I don't really know, but, and I also want to give the salespeople their due. I really think that they, the sales, the sales and distribution mechanism that does a ton. They read books, they get behind them and they put them in stores and they talk to booksellers and, and, and that's, who's doing the work at, Yes, maybe it matters what your headshot looks like. But then my favorite headshot of all time, all time, Mm -hmm. Charlene Harris, who wrote the Southern Vampire Mysteries that became the TV series True Blood. (laughs) She's wearing like an embroidered sweatshirt with cats on it. Mm. It's like a collared sweatshirt. She's got her hair done and the curler is like blown out. Oh, my God. It's (laughs) I want to recreate it because it's really compelling and lovely. And she's not performing pretty girl for shit. She's performing Mm. woman who sits inside on a computer. Yeah. That's real. And uh, on a one book every sort of nine month schedule kind of thing. I I mean, God bless her. I know. God bless whoever. That machine is uh, it's an impressive one. It is. I I don't people do people live that way. I think I don't maybe live comfortably that way. I mean, I would. I would like that's you know, if you if you came over to my house and put a gun to my head and you were like, you have to become a social media star in the next four months. I would say pull the trigger unequivocally. Oh, yeah. Unequivocally. Hands down. Kill me now. It's because it's not. And it's not that I like feel some sort of like moral distaste against the it's just not. I'm just not. I don't want to do it. I'm not good at it. It's not comfortable for me. But if you told me gun to my head that I had to write another novel in the next four months, I'd be like, well, all right. And I'd go buy a hundred boxes of pop tarts. And I would just sit in my office until it was done. I wouldn't yeah. even think about it. Yeah. Of course, I would choose that <laughs> over death, but not in all circumstances. No, not in the social media thing. It is really mysterious to me. And also the one time that I actually tried to do it, um, I was so fucking miserable. Uh, like it, it, I don't know. Oh, you really, made like an effort. Yeah, I made yeah, an effort. I made efforts. Do one thing a day. Totally. Kind of Jesus saying, and I'm gonna totally. like make my my uh, physical self coherent in some way. And, and it's, I just it's, fucking couldn't. It's do hard. It. And I mean, I yeah, I tried to do something last summer where I like because I I read a lot of books. As you were both wood chippers for books, so I was trying to write about for 30 days just like one book that I had read sometime in the last calendar year. And I got to Susan Sontag's Sign of Saturn, and I was under the sign of Saturn. I was trying to write about the fascinating fascism, that essay where she talks about the uh, sexual appeal of fascism. And I was like, is this an Instagram post? (laughs) Is this really what it is? And I I like, I found it very difficult. And then I was sort of mortified that I had done it. No one go look at that. I'm going to delete it before this podcast (laughs) is over. But like that, and that's really, how do you, how can you be breezy and um, kind of tasty in the way that social media requires about things like Susan Sontag's opinions about the sexuality of fascism. Well, because now you don't do that. You read her journals and you take one sentence out of it and turn it into an inspirational totally. quote and yeah. like put it next yeah, to a 100%. sketch that you did of yeah. Susan Sontag. Absolutely. Um, the, right. She's yeah. your muse. We're all bathing in the, in the ghost of her corpse. Yeah. Kind of thing, I mean, yeah. I, you know, the Frida Kahlo tote bag, the Andrea yes, Dworkin the fr- enamel pin, <laughs> the, I yeah. mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Um, but, um, I was going to talk about uh, the myth of psyche, but now I don't know if it fits. <laughs> but I was oh, thinking, okay. But I was thinking about this because human uh, and psyche. Well, researching researching uh, stories of envy, like the two sort of foundational stories um, that I could find, essentially, uh, are the myth of psyche and Cinderella. Oh yeah, um, and it's both sisters. In of both course. stories, it's the sisters that ruin everything. But isn't that jealousy envious. then? If it's sort of multiple, if it's always over a an additional person or object or place. No, because well, envy just simmers. En- envy is a flavor. Jealousy is a, a a state of mind. 
well, I think it leads to um, in both particular cases. I mean, whatever, like the linguist, not linguistic, but the difference between um, jealousy and envy is whether or not you already possess the object. Right. Oh. Jealousy is over something that you have Good. and you are afraid somebody's going to take it from you. Got it. And envy is something that you don't have. Um, and you're never, ever going to have. And you're never going to have. <laughs> and so in bo- in the case of Cinderella, it, the stepsisters were envious of her goodness. And in the psyche myth, they were envious. Her, her sisters were envious of uh, her beauty. But I do find it interesting that there is um, a level of intimacy involved in the in these two stories. Um, that you can uh, know someone intimately and yet still possess this envy for them, which is in, in, I think, in any case, kind of a form of violence. I find envy. You think to be envy very is violent. a form of violence? Yeah. I mean, the experience of being envied is kind of uh, an experience of being sort of um, flattened and decontextualized. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The. Uh... Certainly I've, I've felt envy from other people. Um, and it's, it's telling how people respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't, it's not a way to maintain a friendship. That's for sure. Right. I mean, I think every woman who's been, um, sort of single for a long time, uh, has had married friends like, Oh, it must be so nice. You can do whatever you want. And like the, oh, that, 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 that kind of envy. That sort of like fake conversation that people have. Yeah, but it's actually, I think, real a lot of times. That envy think the married of like, people are envying the single people. Yeah, because of freedom. Uh, the freedom well, then fucking get divorced. <laughs> get divorced. Yeah, get a lot divorced. of people I know hate their spouses and yet they, they're married anyway. Yeah, I I don't want to live like that. I no. think like divorce is here. It's yeah. not you're not going to be the first person to ever do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. If you hate your spouse, move on. Uh that's interesting. I always sort of find that uh, that position when I see it happen in other people to be totally insincere and kind of fraudulent when a married person says to a single girl, oh, you're you're so lucky. I'm like, you don't fucking mean that. No. Well, <laughs> I think part of them does. Um, but they're not. But it's not. Uh, I don't think it's entirely insincere, at least um, uh, I think if it meant actually relinquishing their level of comfort, no, absolutely not. Right. But the envy of the, uh, the freedom and the whatever. Um, I, get, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Again, that it, like, I think that some, some people are interested in long-term partnered mon- monogamy and some people are not. Mm-hmm. And that is who they are. And that is fine. That is, of course it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's not my place to judge anyone else's romantic choices. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, I'm not into that. <laughs> no, I once had a, a woman who's um, married uh, to- tell me that she um, liked to think of herself as a spinster, um, even even <laughs> though she'd been married uh, to, she's married to the man that she's been with her entire adult life and, um, and he financially supports her. But it made me furious um, in, in the moment. And I, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. But I don't think envy is necessarily the, I mean, it's obviously not the smartest of emotions. I don't think it, you envy people that you actually want to be like. I do not, writers that I that I do find myself trapped in a sort of envy mode to, I don't actually want to be that. Right. Um, and it's not just that I can't um, uh, because I didn't go to the right schools and I don't have the right connections that they seem to have. And I don't live in New York and I don't have uh, money or rich spouse, which most of them seem to. Um, uh, it's that I, uh, I, I, that's not in any way interesting to me, but that doesn't mean that I don't envy that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I understand. Yeah. I, and I certainly, you know, my husband is a college professor and I, there are things about his professional career that I, absolutely envy. I guess I'd said before that I've never envied a romantic partner. Now I'm taking it back because I for sure do, but I've also been with him a really long time and I have watched him work for all of those things. Not to say that, um, there were other people, there are other people we know that don't also deserve the same level of compensation and support everyone. Good God. 
what a world we could live in if everyone was received the kind of support that uh, that the academy can really give people if they get behind you. It's extraordinary. Um, but I don't. Uh, what does that mean that I ask for? Or I mean, I don't know how that changes us per se. Hmm. Yeah, it probably does. Maybe if we had equal kinds of support, but then, you know, he envies my freedom. So to write however I want and yeah. Yeah. Sleep till eight 30. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you have found yourself being envied, um, what were they envying? When I felt envied, um, certainly I felt some of that around the time that my first book came out in hardback and that I felt awful. It felt absolutely awful. I felt a, a sensation that the, some of the people I knew didn't think that I deserved to have that experience. And I gotta tell you, nobody deserves to have that experience. It's not a good experience. It's really terrifying to become a commodity. It's not pleasant. Um, and I felt um, alienated and uh, sad <laughs> and weak <laughs> uh, because it divorces you from other people. Um, and that, I mean, and that's sort of achievement in general. You know, I think when you achieve something, other people stop perceiving that you need care. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, when, with the people that you envy, you think, well, I envy them. So they don't need anything from me. They don't need me to, to genuinely care about what happens in their lives or support them or feel sorry for them. I think, you know, you think of people as being ahead of you or better than you or stronger than you. That's just not true. Achievement just, it just means life gets harder. And I don't know why I, having being able to say that I don't know why I'm not just like and I'm finally going to take the mailman's test you know I've taken practice tests at the mailman's test it's really it's my dream above all else I'm very I love to walk and I'm very organized and I have an excellent short-term memory so um yeah I don't know why I'm not just throwing it away to be the mailman because there's something about what I do that I I I genuinely like I find it really really satisfying um but I yeah, the experience of being envied is not is not pleasant. Uh, and so I, I, I don't understand how other people can tolerate it or how they seek to perpetuate it, but they do. They're out there doing it. Yeah. It must feel good to them. But also, I don't think when you are in a state of being envied, it doesn't actually help to try to explain the context of... So in the sense of you were finding it very difficult to be turned into a commodity... But if you told somebody who was in a state of envy toward you, look, it feels like garbage and I'm, you know, and, and I'm sure. terrified and this is really difficult for me. That doesn't stop the envy somehow. No, of um, course not. It's like, They're you like oh, just, shut up. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah why yeah. can't you just what, be what grateful that I could for be made into a commodity? What yeah. that somebody wanted to buy what I was selling? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't know. That's a really that's sort of a tough writer question. I guess if nobody wants to buy what you're selling, then you have to think about what you're selling. Because it, and, and that doesn't mean that your work doesn't have value. There's lots and lots and lots of work that is profoundly non-commercial. Poetry being, I think, sort of the absolute be-all, end-all of that in terms of narrative form of work that is so meaningful and so so absolutely a part of who we are um, as human beings, as as friends, as peers and intellectuals. Uh, and it, it's not something that you can sell in an airport. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's bad, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I write for an audience. I'm trying really hard to, to make something that, um, translates a a set of questions and circumstances about what it means to be a woman in modern life and a woman on her own, not a woman in terms of her relationship to others, not woman as wife, not woman as daughter, not woman as mother or sister, but woman as, as creative person unto herself. And that was true in my first book, my second book. I just finished a draft of my third. It's the same in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, and I want to have a, I, I want to talk to a lot of people about that question. Um, and I think that I do that through my books, but I probably should be better at doing it through some kind of other channel, some soapboxy look at me channel. I don't really know how to do that because it feels, it doesn't feel deep enough. Right. I mean, how does this sort of fit in with 
this sort of obsession with authenticity. I mean, you sort of explore this in, in fake like me. I don't know if we can talk. I don't know if we can talk about it without like wandering into spoiler territory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also just like in, in the sense of, um, this is my authentic self. Um, which also happens to tie in closely with please buy my product. Totally. Um, <laughs> well, so Catherine Chekovich actually, so that grant to essay about uh, her partner, which is of course, Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. Um, she makes a really wonderful, wonderful observation, which is that what she envies about him is that he's not waiting for anybody's permission. And I am constantly waiting for permission in a lot of ways. Some things I don't. I mean, in my books, I feel like I just kind of go forward, but it's still an edit. You know, I'm not writing them. I'm not working as a mailman and writing for myself to satisfy myself and, and having a little shelf of things that I make. I'm, I, I am trying to work for an audience. So I make compromises and I am asking for permission in that atmosphere, but, but not really at my desk. You know, I feel that I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere, but, um, in everything else I am, I am waiting to be told that my authentic self is meaningful and that people care about it. I don't know why I'm waiting for that. I don't know what I'm waiting for. I don't know who's going to tell who the man. So I studied a lot of William Blake who uh, refers to God always as nobo daddy, which (laughs) God bless the 18th century. It just means nobody, big daddy. And I'm looking for some like nobo daddy pops to be like, it's okay. Just say whatever comes to mind, um, which I shouldn't get. No one should be giving me that permission. So, uh, yeah. Do you feel that you are ever waiting for permission? No. Honestly, no. Um, I just kind of do whatever I want. Great. Within the means that I have. Great. It's usually not very much, but um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, when people talk about that as being like an essential part of womanhood, I don't really understand that. But I, but well, that's such a, that's such a hard thing. Like when we say essential part of womanhood, what we mean is like the conditioned circumstance sure. of being female bodied right. in America in 2019. I don't think anyone means that it's a biological imperative. No, no, no. But, I, yeah. but it, as part of like socialization and all this sort of stuff, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, but I think it's a good, I think it's a good excuse, but then it, I think people also use it as part of the, um, uh, I mean, you and I have sort of, uh, talked about, you know, the, the tweets that are just like, I'm really nervous, but I, you know, I have this book coming out and I really want you to pre-order it. Like, uh, we are all contractually obligated to do that. <laughs> Perhaps you are not because you are savvier, but the rest of us I, are man, forced into such online university presses they don't yeah. give a fuck uh but yeah no I, I i don't necessarily uh do you know the origins of your waiting for permission my own personal awaiting permission gosh um yeah heck yeah uh like i said i've been in therapy a very long time <laughs> uh when i was 13 years old we moved from belgium to st paul minnesota and uh, everything about my person, uh, my haircut, my clothing, my references, um, my reading list, my music taste, everything that sort of semiotically uh, uh, composed me as a as a 13-year-old girl was wrong. It was all wrong. And it all had to be put in its place. And I, um, I still, when I go back to St. Paul, Minnesota, feel this like, sensation of being hated like kind of rise up in my throat because it's an incredibly conservative repressed society in which there's one way to be a girl and uh and I was not trained in any of those ways as a young person and so you know I mean this is like I I went to a school where like man we'd be sitting at the lunch table and I'd eat a candy bar and uh, Katie, U <laughs> won't say her full name. She turned and she was like, "Oh my gosh, that's so brave." You know, it's such <laughs> stuff like that where you're like, "What? It's brave of me." Um, and I, as I recall later, I think she also scolded me for using diet pills. It's you know what I mean. It's like a really confusing social environment where you just have no boy, you have no clue which way is up. And um, I uh, had come from a very different society, one that was incredibly religiously, uh, and ethnically diverse. Uh, cause I went to an internet, like a real international school with a bunch of, of stone cold weirdos with whom I am friends to this day. 
Um, but yeah, I think that uh, I really I really felt like I was being electrocuted for like the first six years that I lived in the United States. I felt that I was routinely being chastised, punished, criticized for speaking my mind or being myself. And I reacted really poorly to all of that and certainly made things worse all the time. So that's, oh man, that was a real answer. Now it's going <laughs> on the internet. It's okay. Nobody listens to this. Okay, it's great. Fine. That's great. A, the good thing about being your authentic self on public no, intellectual. Is it no one listens to Yeah, it's, we're screaming into the void. And I like that. Yeah. Well, I do. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of like having um, uh, a limited audience in the sense of the, the, uh, the attempt for mass appeal, I find kind of baffling. I mean, it's very difficult. I'll say that as a yeah. person who does that for a living, it's very difficult. Um, well, I, I mean, I in went my to books, go, obviously not in a, a different time, yeah. <laughs> in, in your, in yourself as you walk down the myself street. Myself as I walk, I love me everyone. <laughs> no. Um, I went to go hear uh, Sarah Shulman speak. Um, and she was talking about being taken out of your context in the sense that, you know, as a writer, you kind of are speaking to, um, especially over a long career, kind of the same people and people who have with her particular career, people weren't just sort of like finding her randomly. Like uh, none of her books sort of like became enormous, um, but then when she would write for some for a larger outfit for the New York Times or something like that, suddenly people who would understand where uh, some whatever she was thinking or, or writing was coming from were free to take her out of context entirely and, of course, and yeah. uh, misjudge her and all that kind of thing. Um, I like staying in my context. I like staying in my in my kind of space and deleting yeah. my Twitter account and going from 55,000 followers to 300 was really the best, uh, act of self care that I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that it was. I, uh, you know, part of me is kind of, is still kind of shocked that you did that. Cause I'm like, man, those numbers matter. You know, they my don't. meetings with my publisher, uh, you know, no, but they do at my Not meetings with my university. publisher. They read them out loud at the conference table. Oh my God. I mean, I'm literally, I feel like I'm being, I feel like I have to put on a hair shirt before I go in there, you know, <laughs> really um, just lay down and, and apologize. Um, they're, and they're just trying to do the, do their business. They're not, they're not trying to humiliate me. Let me be clear. I don't think anyone's maliciously trying to humiliate me. Um, I just think that they're trying to do their job, which is to make uh, quantified information out of information that is actually qualified, which is difficult. Well, I will say that I was recently approached about being an Instagram influencer by Gillette Razor. What? They said in exchange for a post, I would be given, and I I just want to, you know, pause dramatically here, one free razor. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. So I feel like I feel like I've really made it. I feel like now I can assess my cultural impact and it is enormous. Yeah, man. Um, wow. Yeah. I shave my legs like once a year, I guess maybe like (laughs) twice a year. I don't really. would make a really good Instagram post. Just like me shaving my incredibly hair like, like mm, Gillette. They haven't approached me though. I'd have to buy my own razor. It's B-Y-O-R over at my Instagram. Um, that's shocking. Yeah. yeah th- I mean, listen, this is, it's all so depressing. That's the other thing is it just feels like we're participating in something that doesn't have you know, capitalism doesn't have the interest of the human being at heart. It is, it is designed for, for people to make money as quickly as possible. And so that's what we're doing off of each other. And I, I really resent that. I, I resent my emotions being commodified. I resent my feelings being used to sell something to someone else. Um, if only because as my feelings, you know, it's like, well, two in the morning, if I can't sleep, like I'm going to watch Dr. Pimple Popper videos. And then I'm going to like, maybe read something really sad on the New York times. And like, you know, they're just sort of getting all of this detail about the level of my mood and when the time is right to be like, whatever the the way in which they can take advantage of that mood, et cetera, et cetera. They, any advertiser, mm-hmm. right? There's this massive data machine that's happening and that is, uh, it sucks. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to live in that world. I, I, I miss the kind of world of the early 2000s when I first moved to New York and, you know, I saw people by going to a place. 
I would go to a place to see the person that I knew. Sure. Yeah. And I liked that. I miss that commonality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before the PGW um, bankruptcy fucked the publishing industry up really badly. Yeah. I mean, just a sense of like, I feel like that whole moment instilled this panic um, within everybody, especially since so many of the little niche wonderful small publishers that you could kind of build a respectable career with. Yeah. They sort of did the work of academic publishers. Yeah. They all, they all went that. under yeah. at that moment, like yeah. soft school disappearing from our culture. Um, I feel like he's done still around. Uh, Richard, Richard is, um, but uh, soft school is not, I mean, they oh, do I like was... two books a year oh, now okay, and okay. it's part of a conglomerate and, um, and Richard is a life coach now. Um, Dang. And I love Richard unconditionally. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But yeah. 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 Um, but I do, but also that's, that's the saddest sort of commentary on contemporary publishing is that. Uh, well, it's a business, man. Yeah. It's a, a business. You know. It's art is not a democracy. It's a medium mm -hmm. of taste mm -hmm. that, I mean, this is, if you want people to, if you want to sell something, then you have to actually make money at selling it. It's really, we don't have a financial system that allows us to do anything else. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we can, we can have an argument about that, but most of the you, places you think that our financial system allows us to do other things. I'm not taking a moral no, standpoint no, no, on no, which way it, it should go. I'm just saying, I don't really a, think it's possible. No, I think that argument of like, um, most of the places that went under didn't go under because they weren't making money. It's because they were being bought up by investors who didn't see the profit margins that they wanted. So they shuttered them. Of course. Um, that's why you don't take money from other people. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it, it, but the, this idea of like book publishing being unprofitable or, or print media being unprofitable is not actually true. Like most of the places that are closed down aren't closed down because they're not profitable. They're they're closed down because well, they're not it, they're in not the circumstances into which they entered. In they're the not profitable of, enough. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I, who wants to let the wolf in the door? I mean, this isn't we don't we live in a terrible society. It, this is not a positive experience. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a woman, 2019 is amazing. It's amazing. I do what I want. You know what I mean? It, it, 1919, not so hot. I'm happy to be alive now. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that there, it, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make money selling something that you care about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know if that's ever, I don't know under what circumstance that would change. Um, yeah. So I, it's communism. It's difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> There's no successful communist imprint to point to, you know, hmm. there's nothing that isn't ending in a genocide and that's real tough. It's real tough. Um, so what's the process going to be for, for fake like me, as far as like, you know, you're in the beginning stages of preparing for it to come out. Like, how do you psych yourself up for that or prepare for that? I curl up in a ball, uh, man. Um, what do I have to do? I guess like I have to think about some way to promote it on social media that meets the requirements of what I've agreed to. And I totally understand that. And how do I do that in an interesting way? And I, um, I gave a talk yesterday and I had a bunch of images running in the background where I just showed the images for a long time. And then I did kind of one at a time delineating the contents because, uh, fake like me is about a painter and the, the composition of paintings has really changed. Uh, we're talking, you know, sort of the first and second waves of abstract expressionism. We're talking about charcoal. We're talking about tempera. We're talking about may maybe some gouache, but probably just oil on canvas with maybe some gesso, maybe not. And um, and now we're sort of getting to a world in which, um, you know, people are Lucy Dodd is using baby poop. Um, uh, Laura Owens is is cutting things out on vinyl uh, and kind of reformatting them and using string and, and all kinds of, you know, you, you think that she lives in this like MS paint made real factory and it, it is amazing. So I was thinking about doing a bunch of posts where I talk about kind of the contents of, of work that I think is interesting. And I have no idea if that is the right thing to do or not. Um, what else? Yeah. I'm working on a article. Duh. I have to, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question without <laughs> feeling. I, I don't know what to, I mean, it's not up to me, you know, it's not up to me. It's up, it's up to other people. If that, if this is something that they want to read and that they like then, but no amount of me flogging it incessantly is going to turn the tide on, on how it goes. 
Um, I think, you know, you kind of get information from, from sales as that comes in. So you, you kind of, you know, at the moment I know sort of what media hits it will probably get. And I think that's, that's good. I'm, I'm flattered that, that those journalists like the book and want to talk about it. And, uh, and you do a bunch of, I have a bunch of events, you know, you go to bookstores and you're like, hello, (laughs) I'm going to humiliate myself for the next 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I think it's a mistake to believe that we're in charge of this stuff. Because the only thing I'm really in charge of is the manuscript. And even then, there's a bunch of limitations on what I can do and can't do. Mm-hmm. And that's for a reason. It's because other people are going to buy it. And as a reader, I don't mind it, you know. And as far as like emotional preparation for going through a process that you found difficult the first time. Boy, maybe I'm not as prepared as I should be on that front. I think uh, I got to get back into swimming every day. That's pretty helpful. Um, then I hate to say it, meditating, meditating. When I worked at Harpo studios, we all got to take the transcendental meditation Mm -hmm. seminar, which I did just so I could get out of work for like a week for like an hour in the afternoons. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was super weird. And, uh, I got a mantra that I can never tell anyone. It's my secret. Uh, and, and I learned how to meditate, which is napping. It's napping for 20 (laughs) minutes. Works great. Mm -hmm. I'm super into it. Um, what else am I doing? Uh, I'm going to go to the woods for a while, uh, kind of in between events. I have like two weeks where I get to go to the woods and, um, gosh, I have two dogs now. They're pretty distracting and I, yeah, maybe I should have some kind of game plan, I guess. I have a metal, medical marijuana prescription now. I didn't have that the first time. <laughs> God bless Maryland. Yeah. God yeah. bless Maryland. <laughs> Um, yeah, everything becomes a product eventually gang, just hold out. <laughs> so the, the concern about being taken out of your context, I think is where social media is most terrifying. A friend of mine who, uh, has worked in corporate media at a, you know, every big company has made the very salient observation that, uh, you don't, you don't get hired for Twitter anymore. You get fired for Twitter. Sure. Um, and I think there's this endless concern that something that you do will be taken out of context and seen as being tasteless or, or offensive. Uh, and of course the sort of maybe the like knee jerk reaction is like, well, only people who do tasteless and offensive things are worried about being tasteless and offensive. But I, I do feel that we kind of live in a time in which out, outrage is, um, is monetizable and I don't, I don't want to provoke anybody. Right. I just don't want to experience it. But everything can get taken out of context. I mean, yeah, obviously, like bad stand-up comedy comedians, like putting uh, Twitter jokes out there. Sure, I'm not gonna. Um, I, I have no. I, I don't mean that I'm worried about that. No, but uh, but it. I mean, I guess I'm saying like the people who have been fired. Um, a lot of them have uh, questionable um, morality and racism and that sort of thing. Uh, in the sense of like, I I witnessed for. Uh, Within the span of an hour, like somebody's ascendance and descendance. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I shouldn't laugh. That's that's that must have been terrible for them. Um, like it, it was a writer who was on MSNBC and had like this viral moment talking about Bernie Sanders being too old, like an old white guy. Um, he is old. He is. A, he's he's old. Um, People die. I mean, that's yeah. It's not a terrible thing to be concerned about. Um, her argument was le- was less was less nuanced. <laughs> Even the that. <laughs> two words of people die. Yeah, it was. Uh, he's at it. He's he's old, so he doesn't understand anything. Basically, she's like she seemed like twenty five years old. Anyway, so oh, okay. he probably understands a lot. Uh, somebody within like uh, you know uh, fifty minutes of her being on MSNBC and having this moment and getting a lot of followers and you know everyone's like, oh, she's so right. Like we need a young woman as an next president. <laughs> yeah, we we need to hold you up as the icon yeah. of our opinions. Yeah. So somebody found uh, some tweets she made about how she never she will never date an Asian man. Um, Ooh. And there were like a bunch in a row. Uh, so you know, it it was fascinating to watch. She's going to wind up falling desperately in love with some like (laughs) quiet Japanese man. And they're going to like, he's like not going to know about that for like the first year they date. And then she's going to come home and he's going to be sitting there and he's going to be like, what is this? And then she'll write a modern love column about it. Or maybe she'll just have a terrible moral reckoning where she's begging her lover not to leave her. 
No, you don't think so. I don't so. think, think it becomes has, a modern love column. I don't I think anybody has a, I don't want to date Asians and I fell in love with an Asian. I don't think anybody has a moral reckoning anymore. I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's even po- possible in our culture. Like that pe- seems impossible to me, but I, I mean, I'm also an incredibly, I'm a sponge basically. I'm an incredibly sensitive person to my own detriment for sure. Forever. Dog. This has been a forever dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.